invite you to follow in your Bible today in Matthew 12 as we continue studying this letter, not a letter, a gospel from Matthew, a servant of Christ. We've been with it quite a while now. It's a long gospel. I'm not even sure if we're quite halfway through the number of treatments we'll have of this gospel. I haven't finalized plans yet, but I'm thinking that over the summer we'll take a break and look at some other subject for a period of time and then come back. Actually, as we finish chapter 12, we are kind of finishing a division place in the gospel, and it might be a good place for us to turn our minds to some other subjects for a bit of time. But for today, I'm looking at verse 15 through 21 as we continue seeing this time of controversy and rising anger and opposition against Jesus Christ in His ministry. We ended last time, and and relevant to the beginning of verse 15, where I'll start reading, is 14, which says the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. That's the most open statement of that up to this point in the gospel. And uh, so, impinging upon that, Jesus is very aware of what's happening, aware of what their thoughts are. Listen as I read Matthew 12, beginning at 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the nations will put their hope. May God instruct us this morning what this Scripture means to us and how it can picture Christ and work in our lives and situations. I've read that a century ago now, almost a century ago, on a quiet, normal Saturday in his life, an unknown man named Clarence Hiller, who lived in Chicago, was painting the outside window trim of his home with fresh white paint. Why would that be important to anything? that a man named Clarence Hiller in Chicago in 1910 was painting his windows white on the outside. Well, it so happens that that same night after he did that, Clarence Hiller and his wife were asleep in their quiet house in Chicago, and Clarence was awakened by a disturbance. He got up to investigate, and the first thing his wife knew, she heard a shout and a scuffle, and two shots, and she found Clarence dead in the kitchen. The police found that an intruder had entered, apparently by forcing a 
rear window of the house. Clarence had surprised the intruder and had been killed by him. Quite soon, they arrested a man named Thomas Jennings. This was a man with an existing burglary record. He actually was found in a tavern with blood spatters on his clothes, and in his pocket was the same kind of pistol that police believed had killed Clarence Hiller. What was very unusual about this crime that, that was a fairly normal thing, as these kind of crimes go, I guess, was that there was some key forensic evidence that to us seems absolutely commonplace, but in 1910, it was a total novelty to have this be brought forward. You see, there were some distinct fingerprints showing in the white paint of the rear window of the house that Thomas Jennings had entered, and of course, those fingerprints matched his. The science of fingerprinting was brand new at that time. And this was actually the first known case in America where a murder conviction and later an execution of Thomas Jennings was sealed by that new science of fingerprint identification. Well, I raise that picture to you because in God's Word, the Old Testament, I think, contains many prophecies of the coming Messiah, which actually function quite a bit like the setting down of fingerprint evidence of what God's anointed Savior would need to match up to if he is to be recognized as the one truly sent from the Lord God. The prophecies of the Old Testament gave the Israelites of Jesus' time plenty of this kind of evidence that they should have been able to examine and say, look at him, look at what was predicted The fingerprints match. He is the Christ of God. If only they would have compared him in that way to their own specific prophecies that God had long before given. Well, our text in Matthew 12 today is mostly a quote from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Here we find Matthew reminding his readers about explicit things that had been predicted concerning the Savior who is called the Servant of the Lord or the Chosen One, a historic person whom this text says would be given the fullest and most unique endowment of the Holy Spirit of God to come and do something in history. Now, we already know that Matthew quotes the Old Testament and is more concerned to show in his writing how Jesus Christ fulfilled the Old Testament than any of the other gospel writers. They all do it. But Matthew most consistently would say, this was to fulfill the Scripture that said. You've heard that many times as we've been going through Matthew, and you hear it here again today. As he sees Jesus withdrawing from confrontation with the Pharisees and going on to continue his healing ministry in a quiet way. Matthew says this is a fulfillment, and he raises then a passage that is not at all idly chosen. By the way, this is the longest Old Testament quotation in the Gospel of Matthew, and it comes at a very sort of critical place when people are deciding who Jesus is, so it's a pretty important quote. 
And it's from Isaiah chapter 42, which, if you know anything about Isaiah, is the beginning in that book of the most explicit section of Isaiah, 42 onward into the early 50s of Isaiah, is the portion of that book that has the most clear and explicit pointers or predictions to the Messiah, to the chosen one whom God will send in the future, hundreds of years beyond the time when Isaiah wrote. You would probably think uh, something in your mind of Isaiah 53, if you know God's word at all. And from 42 on through 53, and that approximate, that approximate section of Isaiah is the section where the Messiah is pictured in some pretty explicit ways. So Isaiah 42.1 is, is not just an idle quote by Matthew. It's a very important quote. Here's a line of prophecy. And Matthew is saying, look, the way Jesus is acting, the way he's responding, what he's doing matches what Isaiah predicted the chosen one of God, the Messiah, would do. His fingerprints are identical. You could put another analogy on it and say that I'm viewing Matthew's quotation of Isaiah 42 today as, in a manner of speaking, almost as if it was a job description. You know what a written job description is. All of our church staff have written job descriptions that help them understand what we expected them to be doing in their work. Now, those are subject to, you know, change, and over time things are different, and different duties come and go and so on. But at least when someone starts a job, we put it down and we say, look, here's six or eight or ten or whatever points, and we expect these to be your duties. We expect what you're doing day by day to match up with this prediction of your job. You're all familiar with this, I think, in your workplaces. Well, it's almost as if Matthew is saying, let me quote to you from the job description of God's chosen Savior. It comes from Isaiah. And let's ask ourselves whether or not Jesus matches up with that. There's three things I'm going to emphasize from this quotation today as we measure Jesus beside these Old Testament predictions. And the one is how he fulfills divine justice. The other is how he displays the wonder of divine grace. And the third and most brief is how he unites Jew and Gentile together as one people of God. First of all, from this quotation of Isaiah, I believe Matthew is presenting us, led by the Holy Spirit, he's showing us that the chosen one God sends will do this. He will fulfill divine justice, and he will do it both at the cross and as the final judge of history. I'm talking about Matthew 12, 18, quoting Isaiah. He will proclaim justice to the nations. Now, you know, I hope, that the Bible portrays mankind being in violation of the law of God. We are called lawbreakers, offending the holy God by our violations of the things He has told us to do and how we are to walk and how we are to worship and how we are to act towards one another. And one of the greatest questions of the Bible is how will God bring about justice in light of the vast crimes of human beings against His will and His Word? Justice must be upheld, but how will it happen? 
Will God simply wipe out those who uh, disobey him, those who displease him? Will he simply say, oh, that's all right? (laughs) You know, everybody slips sometime. I'll just let it go. Or will he somehow act according to justice in light of our sin? And this is why that doctrine we call justification is at the very heart of divine salvation. It is the most important act of salvation. We are defendants in any court of God. Our crime must be dealt with. It must be worked out and punished, and you know a process must take place. We can't just wink at it. And what we learn in the gospel is that God himself comes with the righteous innocence of Jesus Christ and lets him stand in the dock in our place so that the condemnation and the punishment that we deserved fell on him, and the innocence and the freedom and the pardon and the unity with God as his child that belonged to Christ can be given to us. And the only condition is our faith to receive this. What a bargain. What a fantastic transaction. It's called justification. God's free gift of grace to those who believe in his Son and simply claim this work of justice for their sin. And so, of course, the cross is central to this because that's where the death of Christ occurred and where justification in his blood was worked out. There's so many scriptures we could point to, but certainly Romans 3.25 will suffice when it says God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And he did this, why? To demonstrate his justice. And Romans 3.26 goes on and says that in doing so, God becomes both a just God and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. The justice of God is very much the first work, the first thing that must be dealt with. And so Jesus Christ in history answers that prediction of Isaiah 42 that the chosen one God would send forth does act according to humanity's need for justice. And by his doing what he did and dying as he died, our need for justice has been taken care of. The believer knows that he or she stands under a a canopy of divine protection, a canopy that is built on the righteousness of Christ. And even though I go on sinning all of my natural life, that sentence of condemnation that was on me from my birth has lifted from me. It's canceled. It was 100% satisfied by Christ because when he on his cross said, it is finished, one of the many things that signaled was the completion, the accomplishment of justification, satisfaction legally of the penalty for those who are beneficiaries of his blood by faith. Now, that would be the main thing we could say of how Jesus matches up with this idea that the chosen one of God will proclaim justice to the nations, but I think there's another way we have to add to under this first point, and that is that he will yet fulfill and bring to absolute completion in a visible way the justice of God one day, because just as Christ 
died for us, rose again, and ascended to heaven. Scripture teaches that he now rules as Lord of creation at the right hand of God and that he will be the coming judge, the chief justice of the highest court of all. And that when Jesus Christ comes as judge of heaven and earth, every living soul will either be received by him because of faith and resting in him or rejected by him because of unbelief. Now, we don't know when Christ will come. Everybody would like to know. Everybody would like some kind of a a timeline of history in which they could say, well, it's, you know, hey, it's going to be a year or two. I better get going. I better be ready. And the Scripture says absolutely clearly he will come at a time when people know not and when they do not expect him. But when he comes, visibly and gloriously, a swift chain of events will unfold that ends history in a business-as-usual way on this planet as we know it and brings decisive, irreversible, judgment in which evil is banished and God's righteousness as he sees it in his people, the righteousness of Christ that is, is drawn to him and he gathers his people together. There's no threat in this event for you who are in Christ. There's terrible threat for those who are outside of Christ. But Matthew 12, 20 here says that Christ will then lead justice to visible victory. It won't just be an unseen thing. It will be absolutely open, and all eyes will understand what he has done. And so we can say that both at his cross and in his future return as judge, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prediction of a Savior who will enact divine justice. Evil will not have the last word. God's justice will reign supreme due to Christ as a dying Savior and coming judge. Well, in the second place, and maybe the thing that is most prominent about this text is another point of what you could say the fingerprints of this chosen one or the job description that he is to fulfill in verse 19 of Matthew 12, again quoting from Isaiah. It tells there about the manner or the characteristic way in which God's chosen one will act when he comes. He'll be unique. He won't behave like most very important people in history behave. It says he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. Now, you wonder what that is. Well, I think the Scripture is pointing to the way that most leaders, most great rulers come into power. They come through some manner of a display or a disturbance or an uprising or maybe even a revolution. Their voices are loud and strident. You think of the voice of Hitler if you've seen the the tapes and heard the tapes from olden time. People in America listen to the voice of this dictator just yelling and speaking so strongly to the German people, and they thought, what? is that man? What kind of a man is that? Well, that is exactly the kind of man the Scripture is saying Jesus is not. He is not a man who has to raise his voice or put on demonstrations or have a publicity agent spread his name on billboards. He is a man who comes quietly but in the power of God. 
And this second identity marker, the second point I'm making today, would be stated this way, that this chosen one of God comes to display the power of divine grace and do it so meekly that damaged and fragile people can receive it. You see, the depiction here is that the behavior of God's chosen Messiah must be that of a humble servant. In so many words, it's saying he's no brawler. He's not somebody who starts protest marches in the streets. The ministry of Jesus on earth was not violent or sensational, and it certainly was not self-serving. He's not one who seeks confrontation. In fact, right here in this passage, the passage begins with him withdrawing from confrontation. In verse 14, we read of the Pharisees reaching their conclusion that they had to kill him. Well, if Jesus was one kind of revolutionary, he would have stood up to them and said, oh, yeah? Well, the guys on my side are more powerful than the guys on your side. Let's fight it out. Well, Jesus didn't say that, did he? When they reached that determination, he withdrew and went about his ministry of preaching and healing. And, uh, and Matthew is saying here in verse 17, this, the very way that he responded to that crisis of, of confrontation and determination that he should die by withdrawing was not because he was a coward, but it was to fulfill the manner in which the servant of God would come as a Messiah and a Savior for the world. He would pull back until his hour was right to die. When, when the hour was there, when it was time for him to die, he wouldn't flinch from it. He wouldn't run away. In fact, he would march right towards it. But the hour hadn't come yet. Now, you might say, wait a minute, I can think of times in the ministry of Jesus when he was confrontational. How about the, the cleansing of the temple when he went in and threw over the tables and and spoke words of denunciation to those who had made the, the temple of God into a marketplace. What about the very sharp words we're going to hear? If you're aware of this later on in Matthew, near the end, there's a chapter where he has incredibly sharp and hard words to say, woes against the Pharisees. Chapter 23 of Matthew is one of the hardest chapters. Jesus goes on and on saying, woe to you, you snakes, you brood of vipers, and so on. You say, boy, that's confrontational. Well, let me tell you this. All of the confrontation, all of the raising of his voice in the streets, if you want to put it that way, that we see in Jesus Christ that I can think of, is spoken against the determined representatives of unbelief. The point that Matthew is making, that when Jesus presents himself either to believers or to those who are in need of the grace of God and and are listening and looking for the grace of God, he doesn't come to them in some powerful way saying, here I am, you know, pay attention to me. I'm the very exalted and powerful person. He comes gently. He comes quietly. And he speaks the truth of God, not harshly, not haranguing, not manipulating. The main characteristic of Jesus Christ was his lowliness and his kindness and his selfless dependence on God in his ministry. I wonder if I can possibly, without your thinking, I have ulterior motives, 
give you an illustration of this as you think about a situation right here in our county as we face uh, upcoming uh, political primary elections on Tuesday of this week. It seems to me that what we're being called to do, I understand, is that people from various political parties are seeking to either be judges or county commissioners or a few other officers that are uh, up for election, and you've received all the mail, and you've received the automated phone calls. You know, I get this phone call, and I'm, is this recorded, or is somebody actually talking to me? Sometimes I'm not really sure. And, uh, all, you know, all the things that have been done and said, as they always are in the political process. And in the next 48 hours, if you are going to use your privilege as a citizen, you need to ask yourself, which of the candidates for all these offices, whatever party they're from, have mostly majored in blowing their own horn with one hand and with the other hand using a knife to stab somebody else in the back? Versus which candidate is presenting himself or herself as a person of integrity, standing upon experience, and not in the sense of this text, brawling in the streets? Isn't that the question we always have to ask in a political election, any election, not this one any differently than any other? Is there any authentic character here? Is there any authentic humility here? That should be the person we want to be in power or in authority in our society. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 17 has an interesting word. It says, the words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a tyrant among fools. The wise person of integrity is sometimes hard to identify within the races of human politics, and sometimes we might almost feel that there isn't any such person out there. But the chosen one whom God would send forth would be supremely this one who speaks wisely and in quietness in the midst of the brawling and the rough and tumble of human politics and human power, the actions of Christ showed us that here was all power, here was the very omnipotence of God. But did he come thundering? Did he come flinging lightning bolts? Or did he hold that power in check and speak in such a way that his modesty and his gentleness were making him very approachable? And the might of the Spirit of God working silently in hearts was what mattered. Now, there's a result to this that's here in this passage. Not only are we told what Jesus was like, but we're told how his being this way made him effective. Isaiah 42, 3 is quoted in Matthew 12, 20 here with this famous line that you probably know when it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick... He will not snuff out. I think you can get a picture in your mind of what that image is about, but just in case it doesn't make a lot of sense, reeds we know were useful for a number of things in Jesus' day, but often they were used for things like making baskets or containers. They were cheap material. You could go out and, you know, gather them by the armful where they would grow by the sides of rivers or something, and bring them all in, and you'd have a big pile of reeds to weave your basket with. Well, as you did that skilled work, you would pick one up, and if it had become bent or maybe even cracked or something in the process of gathering it, you would look at that, and you'd think, I don't want that in my basket. So you would 
throw it aside. It's cheap. You can easily get another one. Why bother with it? Or Jesus is also thinking about the idea of a candle lighting a home when it has burned down to the very nub. And you know that that kind of last little moment when the the flame isn't even really a flame. It's more than a spark, but it's not a flame. But it, it has so little fuel to work on that it's, you, you, you would just watch it and expect as you watch it to go and disappear. Well, Jesus is likening reeds and candles in that condition to human beings. And he's saying, how are human beings who are bruised and cracked and damaged going to be helped? What kind of a chosen person will God send to help human beings like that? What kind of a Savior will help a human being whose spirit is burned so very low that there's almost not even a spark left? Will it be the blustering, dictator-like person who's consumed with himself and trying to establish his power? Or will it be a person who can come with a deft, touch that is as careful and as well-suited as the hand of a mother with an infant child. People are broken. People have spirits that are shattered and worn out. Many people, for many reasons, have a spirit that is burned so low that there's almost not a spark left, and they feel like outcasts perhaps from society. Maybe they're deeply ashamed because of sin in their lives. What kind of a Savior will be able to help that person? Well, the Scripture here is telling us Christ is exactly the Savior that Isaiah foresaw, who comes and stoops down and gently, acting as if he himself were weak while he's supremely strong, but he is able to help this person. He is able to fulfill what Psalm 34, 18 said, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. He doesn't snuff out that last little spark. He knows how to just breathe on it enough that he nourishes it into a flame again. There is no person so broken, so depraved, so far in wandering away from God that Jesus Christ does not have the perfect remedy to be able to meet that person in tenderness and draw them back to the heart of God again. What a wonderful, wonderful Savior He is. He displays the power of divine grace so meekly that damaged people can receive it. Now, I'll make the third point of our text quickly today. I'm not going to dwell on this one. It's in Matthew 12, 21. And here's one more thing that God's chosen one would do, and the person who would do this certainly matches up with the prophecy of God's Savior. In His name, the nations, the nations, emphasize that word, will put their hope. Stated another way, God's Savior will be the one who will draw every nation, Jew and Gentile, into one great people of God. Now, this is a big subject, but it can actually be summarized fairly simply. By the servant of God, by this chosen, ordained one of God, upon whom His Spirit is put, 
doing his work in history, Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church will finally be seen to become one people. The nations will come together because of him. It was God's intention from the very beginning when his covenant was first spoken through Abraham and the other patriarchs, that covenant's being stated, I will be your God and you will be my people. It was stated, of course, to the leaders of what became Israel, but it was always, always, always intended that the nations would be beneficiaries. Now, that wasn't seen through most of the Old Testament. Israel kind of hugged the covenant close and said, this is ours. This is our distinctive. And they sinned in that. But Paul wrote firmly in Romans 4 and Galatians 3 and spelled it out without equivocation that if you belong to Christ, you are the seed of Abraham. You are Israel. And there is no more any Jew or Greek in the sight of God, but one people, one nationality made up of all nations bound together as God's people in Christ. Jesus Christ brought that into fulfillment. The book of Acts shows it in abundance. The epistles of the New Testament argue for it time after time, saying, you know, Israel, you don't stand apart from the Gentile. We all stand together. We're one people. The nations have been brought together in Christ. Well, the conclusion of this text is saying then that Jesus Christ exactly fits the predictions of Isaiah 42. That's what Matthew means to tell us, that the fingerprints of Christ match all the prophetic requirements, and so we can joyfully rejoice and say, I recognize God's Savior here. He's Jesus. Notice, too, that it says back in Isaiah that this one who comes will not fail. He will not be discouraged until all these things are accomplished. Now, as I close, I want quickly, very quickly, to make one personal application to us as individuals and to the whole church out of this portrayal of the magnificent character of Jesus, and it's mostly taken from my second point. Since we are the people of God, since we, and I'm assuming I speak to you as someone who has come to Christ in faith and is justified by God's grace, through the blood of Christ, if we are these people of God and we are striving to speak His truth and to make known that gospel of hope and joy to souls that need Christ, how are we going to do this ministry? Are we going to do this ministry with our methods, with the methods of human promotion, with the methods of good administration? with the methods of arming ourselves and educating ourselves so that we know the doctrine of the Scripture inside and out and we can win any argument? Is our ministry for the gospel going to be based on how qualified we are, how much we've excelled in some program that teaches us how to witness? If any of these things are the case, I'm afraid our ministry is going to be much more smoke than flame and very little of the Holy Spirit upon it. Can we, as rank-and-file disciples, men and women of God, and as church leaders, can we do ministry the way Christ did it? Is it too much to hope that hurting people might see the grace of God by the graciousness of our witness?
And in fact, I have to tell you that if they don't, they may never see it at all. You may have your doctrine summarized down to a T, and you can, you can point that struggling person to all the, the right doctrinal understandings, but if there is no graciousness, if there is no humility, if there is none of this portrait we have of Jesus here, the poor, the broken people, those who are shamed, deeply shamed by their habits of sin, those people will not be drawn to what you have to say. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And and what he did, of course, was unique. And what he did at the cross, we don't reproduce that. We don't match the fingerprints of the chosen one of God that Isaiah was talking about. And yet, the Holy Spirit of Jesus is in his disciples. It's in his church. And if we try to do his ministry our way, by human huffing and puffing and organization. We're not doing his ministry. We need a ministry that glimpses, and not only glimpses, but by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, saying, I can do all things through him who gives us strength, has that same grace, that same tenderness with the hurting person, that same patience to keep on praying with the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks who are in our world around us. They will only have a chance, I think, to recognize the Savior whom God appointed when they glimpse Christ living in us. Let's pray together. Father, you've given us a great task But we're not afraid of it because you've given us a great Savior. Thank you for Jesus who matches everything that was expected of him. Give us his graciousness, his character, his heart to so minister for you that the winsomeness of who he is would be seen and people would not respond to us but to him. We ask this for his honor and praise. Amen.